That is all she wrote. Italy have beaten England and become European champions. Roberto Mancini has his redemption as well. I speak to Gianni, who's an Italy fan, and his dream came true. The tears of joy that I thought I was going to experience didn't happen. And I just start, I'm just nervous, I'm sweaty, I'm holding my wife's hand and she was like... You know, this is hurting. Chill, chill out. Ex-youth player Ollie talks about his experiences at the hands of racism. I think it's getting worse, and for me personally, it was it is draining because you think, oh, did I do something wrong? Even more so than one of my teammates. And Azim tells us why he's trying to get a refund on a recent purchase. I've been a Netherlands fan for the since '98. We don't get official like Netherlands merchandise here, so I, I ordered a jersey from the UK. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and follow the pod. Let's get into this episode. The Italian job is complete for Roberto Mancini and co. Uh, the ultimate 180 turnaround from Mancini, from not qualifying for the last tournament to winners of this one, with two warriors at the back and an incredible young keeper, uh, and, and lots of injuries as well to key players, Spinazzola, Chiesa. And when we last spoke, Gianni, you were a little bit unsure as to what would happen. Now you're European champions. How's it feel? I'm just over the moon. I can't tell you how happy I was last night. And of course, I was so anxious watching it. When the goal goes in early against you, you of course, like, you just, you're just thinking maybe it's not going to be your night. But in a way, it was the best time to concede, right? It gives you so much time to get back into the game. The game plan didn't change when Luke Shaw scores that goal. The game plan was, mm-hmm. we need to score a goal and win this football match. We still had to score a goal to win the football match. So it was keep calm and carry on. And I eventually felt if we keep the ball, keep England running make them chase the game, exert more energy than us, they'll eventually tire, there might be a mistake, there might be gaps, and we got our equaliser. So yeah, when it went to penalties, of course I was nervous, but in a weird way, and I think I said to you a few days ago, I was confident going into a shootout knowing we had Donnarumma on side, and he was magnificent. I know Pickford was too, but but yeah, that massively helped, having the, the big guy in goal. Yeah, I mean, when the penalties happened, the fact that Pickford saved two... And still lost is quite insane <laughs> because, like, for an England keeper to save two in the first place is difficult. Um, and when Jorginho missed, what was your reaction at that minute? Mate, I've never got emotional watching football. Like, I adore football. It's never brought me to tears until last night. And just before Jorginho takes that penalty, I'm a mess. I just start welling up, thinking that we've won it, right? I'm overconfident. I'm like, Oh, no, we've got two bites at the cherry here. Georgina's got a score, but then also England have got who. So I was just like, Georgina's going to stick it away, just like he did against Spain. As soon as he misses, the tears of joy that I thought I was going to experience didn't happen. And I just start, I'm just nervous, I'm sweaty. I'm holding my wife's hand and she was like, you know, this is hurting, chill, chill out. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then obviously, you know, Donnarumma comes up trumps and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back to the tears of joy. It was just such an emotional occasion. You know, you mentioned when you were at Wembley watching Spain, you, you witnessed a, a, a scene with, um, with an Italy fan just in hysterics after the game and how beautiful it was to watch. I mean, I'm sure mine wasn't quite so beautiful. It was pretty messy. But at the same time, like I've never experienced anything like that. Just the joy. And it wasn't just because we had won it. It's because we had won it against England. And as, as we spoke about before, like that was the biggest game for me. It couldn't have been any bigger. 
Mm. And let's let's rewind a little bit to how it sort of played out. Italy, obviously, as you mentioned, conceded early. For England fans, that was like the dream start. Where actually, I also agree with you a little bit. Tactically, I don't think it suited England. Um, and then Jorginho and Verratti just completely dominated the game for Italy. Jorginho, I know you're a massive fan of his. Um, how good was he? He was unbelievable, and he went down so early with a with a heavy knock. Like, look, we we know professional footballers very rarely play at a hundred percent, right? They're never fully fully fit. Jorginho played that game in the second half at 70 percent, and he just he's an absolute warrior. I think he played every minute. I think off the mm. top of my head, he was the only Italian outfield player to play every minute of the Euros. I think Donnarumma, and even Donnarumma came off with a couple of minutes yeah, against Wales. So you know, Jorginho absolutely smashed it. He's key to the system. Every move starts with him and then a nod to Verratti because every move goes through him as well and as a two they complement each other so well with Verratti playing kind of 10 yards higher up it's very rare you find two central midfield players that are on exactly the same wavelength at that elite level and those two are Mm. they just know each other so well it was just it was it was it was brilliant to watch those two in in motion and that second half just to, to have that that nous, that know-how to manage the game and not panic, even though you're losing, but then still find those forward passes every time. Fair play. Those two smashed it. Yeah, there was a lot of faith in the way Italy were playing, despite being behind. You always felt as though, and I imagine England fans felt the exact same way, the goal was coming. Uh, Whether it was a worldie, whether it was a, a mistake from someone, in the end it was a scrappy goal. But I think you would have enjoyed that even more because of how how like how you had to really dig in. Um, but at no point did I feel as though England were in control of the game, and I think that is absolute like kudos to Jorginho Verratti and also Chiellini Bonucci because they were playing so high up the pitch. I don't think I've seen two centre backs who are not quick at all play that high. I think that is a lot of that is a to do with Donnarumma and b to do with the fact of how good these two are. Yeah, so ballsy to play to play that high. I mean, maybe if we don't go a goal down, we, we, we're a little bit deeper, but we had to play that high. We had to be on the front foot. And look, they say the first five, ten yards as a centre-back is it is in your head. And for Chiellini and Bonucci, it clearly is. They're just a step ahead because that's so intelligent and so smart. So, yeah, I mean, fair play to those two. I was delighted to see Bonucci on the score sheet as well. Like... He's been such a big player for us. He he was delighted as well. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the videos and uh, him at the end of the end of the game grabbing the camera and saying, "Did he say he said it's coming to Rome?" Um, Love it. So yeah, he's, he's a bit of him and Chiellini are pantomime villains. Um, yeah. But the lad behind him, Donnarumma, so young. Um, I've heard some awful comments from commentators during this Euros of like, "He's decent, him, isn't he?" You have to watch this. He's outrageous, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I heard as well. Like, oh, that 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 young lad looks like a real player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the same guy that made his AC Milan debut five years ago when he was sixteen. He's been, you know, Italy number one for a few years and made his Italy debut at seventeen. Like, not many big goalkeepers are able to be that agile and get down that quickly. That's the only criticism you ever have of the really tall guys because everyone wants a big goalkeeper, right? But you look at your Pickfords and your Larises and go. They're shorter, but it's great because they're so agile. They get down quickly. Well, Donnarumma still seems to get down just as quick and he's just as agile as well as being able to dominate the area in every high ball and every cross. I look back to some of the saves he made against against Belgium and Spain especially and he deserves mm. player of the tournament for those two performances alone. It's When you've got such a trusted man in goal that just... 
like the confidence there is so good. You know, compare him to say Pickford, just in mentality and mindset. Pickford unnerves me a little bit. Whilst he had a very good tournament, playing in front of him, if you're Maguire or Stones, and having someone at you all all game can't be healthy. And I look at Donnarumma and see he's calm and just composed. And you know you've just got a pair of safe hands. It gives me like Buffon vibes. You know, like Buffon at that age was really similar of being like uber calm under so much pressure. You feel like you've got another Buffon, which is so unfair to every other nation because Buffon was outrageous for 20 years. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. You get you, you get your number one in when they're in their t- early 20s and you've got them for, well, in Italy, you don't have them for 10 years because they, they stay in goal to that 35, 40. So you've got them for 15, 20 years. Like to be able to know you've got a safe pair of hands for that long is 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 quite phenomenal. I mean, I feel sorry for all the up and coming brilliant young goalkeepers in Italy because yeah. because to get get in front of him, you're gonna have to really ask some questions, aren't you? Yeah. And pre-tournament, what was the the target for, for you as a fan? Obviously, for Italy, it would have just been to go as far as possible. Yeah. Do you know what? I I, I saw myself as sort of get to the semi-finals, and we'd have had an unbelievable run. I, I really did. I, I was worried about France. I, I, you know, I, I thought Portugal looked good in the friendlies. I, you know, the, the dark horses I fancied early on, which didn't do so well, was Turkey, who did poorly, and Denmark, who did well. But then, of course, England with with the, with their run and their side of the draw in the games at Wembley. So I'd have been delighted with semi-finals. So once we got playing, and when I was seeing some of the big guns dropping out, I'm not going to lie. By the third group game, I was thinking we could win this just by going off form. But then, so often we've seen in years gone by the best team doesn't always win a major competition, right? They peak too soon. I remember watching Argentina a, a few competitions back in the World Cup, thinking they looked amazing. And then, you know, they lose a scrappy quarter or semi-final. And I was worried that might happen to us. But look, we've just turned up. We probably had peaked early. I don't think we've seen the best Italy in the semis and final. But maybe that's because Spinazzola's out as well. Against Belgium in the quarters was probably our most impressive game. I mean, also lost Chiesa when he was looking so dangerous. When, he, when I think... Chiesa came off, I felt as though the pendulum swinging to England here because I was like, the main danger man's off. England was stepping off him, um, but England just didn't seem to get going. You spoke really well the last time we spoke about England and like England's hopes and everything else and lots of things have happened. Do you have any sympathy for England because of the way the final played out? Do you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to lie, I don't. <laughs> I, really, I know I should do. <laughs> I've got sympathy for English fans because I, I feel that pain. Like losing finals is, is just horrible and losing on penalties is the worst. But I, I think England went as far as, 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 as they deserved. They, that team, whilst it looked very good and very accomplished, it didn't look like a tournament winning team for me. It was a safe team. It was a productive team. It was an efficient team. It, it looked like Italy in years gone by, perhaps, but mm. they were perhaps a little bit too safe for my liking to go and win a tournament. If I look back and look at the spread of goals, for example, heavily reliant on Sterling and then Kane. You look at Italy, five or six of their players got two goals in this competition. Yeah. You look at some, how some of the goals were scored. You know, you look at the top 10 goals of the Euros, five of them are probably from Italy goals. Like, we scored some amazing finesse goals. England probably didn't. So, look, England's time will probably come. I hope it does for them. And maybe it's just one tournament too soon for what is a very young side. And maybe come Qatar, it, they, they've got a slightly, slightly better hope as Gareth, perhaps in the next sort of 12 months, tries to add a little bit of creativity to the team. They're a little bit safe at the moment. And we saw after Russia, they went from a back five to a four and it worked mm. quite nicely. 
I think Gareth will go again and go, I need one extra creative player in this team. And then I'll go again. We know the talent is there. I mean, the squad depth is insane. The England bench compared to the Italy bench last night was absolutely levels. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned Qatar. You've gone 30 plus games unbeaten. Qatar's not that far away. There's a small part you think, if we get the right sort of draw, because I think the World Cup is all about how the draw plays out, because you could get Brazil in literally the round of 16 and then anything can happen. Um, the draw's been fairly generous to England this time. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's been particularly generous to Italy as you took out Belgium, Spain and also England. Um, are you looking at Qatar and thinking this Italy team could win it? Yeah, I think we'll go in as sort of... I wouldn't be surprised if we go in as second, third or fourth favourites. I don't think we'll be favourites, but, you know, will Chiellini and Benucci part, be, be a partnership at the back? Probably not. Chiellini, I'd be surprised to see him starting in 18 months mm. at 36. But we've got options coming in. Bastonia Inter is a young centre-back that looks sensational. Sorry. He could play alongside of Benucci and they could complement each other well. The likes of... Um, Verratti and Giorgino will still be at a very good age. And then the likes of Barella and Chiesa, uh, you know, they'll only be better. You know, these are young players. Donnarumma. I do think we're lacking a number nine. I, I like him, Mobley. I like him. I don't love him. You know, you put Harry Kane in that team and it's, 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 they look, they look like world beaters. We perhaps need that number nine. But also in Qatar, I'm really excited we could have we could have our, our, our Zaniolo back at, at Roma, who's mm. potentially when you look at all the young Italian players, and I put Chiesa and Barella and Donnarumma in that category. Arguably, Zaniolo, most Italians would have told you six, seven weeks ago, going into the Euros, he's the number one out of that crop. So you put him in that team, and it's even more exciting. So yeah, look, I, I, I'm buzzing for now, but look, go and go and do the double, please. I mean, I couldn't think <laughs> of it. You know, it's beyond my world, wildest dreams. That one. Getting a bit greedy there, Gio. Yeah. Um, thank you, man. And congratulations again from uh, an England fan to an Italian fan. You did deserve to win the final. And uh, I'm guessing you're going to roll out with, with a ton of good content <laughs> in the next few days because I, I did see you went quiet on social media out of respect to England for a day. So uh, go and enjoy that. And uh, thank you again. Thank you, mate. I did. Last night, I was I was fairly quiet on the night we won. And then and then the following day, straight away, I spent two hours writing this like 23 post thread on Twitter. So yeah, I'm coming into my own now. We're joined by Ollie, here, who's an England fan and was also at the game. First of all, being at a Euros final and witnessing England must have been a pretty big deal. Yeah, it was It was ridiculous. The atmosphere was just unbelievable. I think we turned up on Wembley Way about 4pm and I don't know what the numbers were, but there was just a sea of white shirts, flares going off, singing, dancing. It was just an unbelievable atmosphere um, turning up there and definitely definitely a once in a lifetime experience yeah and I imagine you probably paid a lot of money for the ticket as well <laughs> so seeing not winning you must have been devastated by the end yeah it was It was, yeah from I'd say um, 4pm till 11pm was probably the greatest footballing game event I've ever been to and then it, like it just then it was just as though someone had died it was just the atmosphere just went completely flat and that walk down Wembley Way is not the best at most of the time, but in the rain, after losing in a European Championship final, is pretty depressing. 
Mm, can imagine. And obviously loads has been said about the fans and England fans in particular after everything happened. Lots of social media clips um, going around. What was it like getting into the stadium? Um, it what. To be honest, that's what I said that we got onto Wembley Way and we came out of the station, it looked fantastic. And then as you walk down the steps and under the bridge, I literally came out and the first thing was a glass bottle just came flying past me and smashed in front of me. And so outside on Wembley Way, there's a lot of people obviously there trying to enjoy it, um, but without tickets. And it was it was it wasn't it wasn't a nasty atmosphere, a horrible atmosphere. It was it was just typical Drinking all day, drunken English fan behaviour, you know, th- throwing bottles, throwing cans. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't overly aggressive, but it wasn't particularly friendly or a nice place to be. Um, getting into the stadium, we decided because of that to go into the stadium pretty early. I think we went in about six-ish, mm. um, and yeah, it was a bit. It was a complete shambles. The, the the COVID checks and the ticket checks. I could have honestly, I could have shown the guys. Uh, the stewards a picture of you on my phone and they'll just wave me through they weren't they weren't checking anything um and then we got once we got into the stadium the atmosphere was brilliant it was really good you know it was that party atmosphere but inside obviously everyone had paid good money to be there so everyone was just enjoying it it was a really friendly atmosphere we did get a group of people that stormed in um into the section we were in it was just probably i don't know a 30 second period it was just Tens of fans just streaming through and streaming through. I think they eventually managed to shut the doors. Um, but yeah, the atmosphere in the stadium was fantastic. Um, but obviously, I'd say the security at Wembley wasn't great. Mm. And then leaving the stadium, so what I've seen and what I've read is that loads of fans tried to storm in. There was loads of fights and things. And as you mentioned, leaving the stadium, the atmosphere was completely dead. But there's also videos of fans then as well causing problems and getting into fights and and whatnot. Did you feel during the game or on the way there, etc., etc., that at any point something really bad could have happened to yourself or someone around you? I did. It, the only time was just that part on Wembley Way before the game. It just, it, it, like I said, it was just that drunken behaviour of the bot. You know, I don't know how the police or how they allow people to pay in glass bottles and stuff like that. I know it's probably hard to. Hard to police it, but coming out the tube and onto Wembley Way, they've got to do probably something better on there because that's the part. I was with people that felt, you know, I probably had too much to drink and was enjoying myself, but mm. I was with people that really felt that really felt unsafe and weren't happy there, which was our decision. We moved away from it, then into the stadium pretty quickly. Um, it's a it's a difficult one for the police because I have a feeling if the police suddenly turn up with all the riot gear and try and move people and get involved it can create the atmosphere can turn really nasty and I think they took the view of not doing anything um which also it's a it's a you know they're in a probably in a bit of a catch-22 position and I guess you know there's been lots of big sporting events and lots of big games at Wembley but that was a real unique experience that will never happen again there's there's never going to be a situation or very unlikely to be a situation where England in a major championship final at Wembley, you know, so, you know, having attracting crowds like that, just want to be there and be part of the atmosphere. Mm. You mentioned that you went to the game with some of the people. Who did you actually go with? Uh, with as with two or three friends, and you know, just it was sort of six or seven of us that went to the game. So I, I was when I'm like looking through these videos, I'm thinking if you say took your kids or your wife, I'd imagine your feeling of 
what it's like there would have been completely different yeah one of the, one of the guys we were with was with his was with his wife and his feeling i could see she was really uncomfortable and he was feeling it made him feel you know it, it was just it was the atmosphere outside the stadium before the game that made them feel uncomfortable i did think there was a guy with the, with a young son that was in front of us during the game and did think it's not nice for them to have had to walk through that to get to the stadium coming up again coming up Wembley Way past where Box Park was it was just it was pretty not not nasty but just overly drunken you know just disrespectful behaviour a lot has been said about it being like a small minority like for you spoiling it for the majority um, and it's not the feeling of the nation as a whole but 19 people have been confirmed to have been stabbed uh, hundreds obviously broke into Wembley and loads of bottles were thrown all over Trafalgar Square and I don't know if you've seen this video but Trafalgar Square was an absolute mess um, whichever side of the fence you sit on I think this weekend has once again shown that England English fans turn up and wherever we go we cause problems and it's not all of us it is but there is some of us that are doing it the question that comes to my mind is like why like why is that happening you know, I guess it's the it's the attitude of I don't know what happens. To be honest with you, I don't know what happens with when other countries play and other countries and other cultures. But that it's the attitude of being out drinking all day. It was just, I mean, obviously I've, that's the first I've heard about the stabbings and stuff like that. But the stuff I saw was just pure drunken behaviour. It was people that had probably been stood there since ten, eleven o'clock in the morning downing beers, vodka, whatever they could drink, whiskey, anything they could drink, and just thought it was funny to, you know, finish my bottle of beer and just throw it into a crowd of people or pick up a traffic cone and put it on someone's head or throw it at people. It it, it does ruin it, and I think, it, you know, when you said before, people that have got young children there or, or there with the families to enjoy it, it definitely spoils it for them. But I don't, I'm not, I'm certainly not defending these people. The bits I saw wasn't, it wasn't malicious. It, they weren't, you know, I didn't feel that someone was going to come up and suddenly bottle me or attack me or something like that. But I did feel that I could just be stood there and get hit by a flying bottle, which is which is no better. Mm. Um, so I did feel it was, it was more just drunken, you know, mainly young guys, just drunken, aggressive behaviour rather than malicious trying to find a fight or something like that. I wonder if the fix here is, and I'm probably going to sound like a massive Scrooge and it's very easy for me to say because I don't drink, what if the fix is that you're not allowed to drink before a football match or not allowed to drink at a football match? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, I think there's lots of options. I think not, not drinking at a football match, I think anyone that was there last night with that atmosphere, you don't need alcohol to be able to, to enjoy that or get, to get a buzz from that type of type of atmosphere. But even just having... When you've been, you know, it didn't feel, and maybe because of COVID and, and stuff that's gone on, it didn't feel like there was proper designated fan parks. It didn't feel very well organised. There was no, you know, security of checking the people to get into to Wembley Way. Even if they just had a ban on bottles and cans and stuff going in and people or people taking their own drinks in there and just having, you know, in, in the stadium, if you buy a beer, you're buying it in a, you're getting it in a paper cup. You can't really cause much trouble with that plus if you've got to queue for drinks and wait and pay for them it's you know people don't you know ultimately people don't drink as much when you let people just turn up with 
you know, you know, mainly groups of young guys with bottles of vodka, bottles of whiskey from 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. It co- you know, that's what causes the problem, I think. If I say said now, because um, obviously you mentioned that and I'm, I'm not for one second saying you can't drink at a football match or people can't handle a drink because clearly, as you've just said, you had quite a bit to drink and you handled it pretty fine. Uh, I'm pretty sure if you were the one throwing bottles, you probably wouldn't be sat here having a chat with me. Um, if I said now, like, wait, let's say I'm Boris Johnson, we're banning, we're banning alcohol at football matches or before a game, uh, and there'll be alcohol, and you, you get tested before you go into the stadium if, if you've been drinking. Would that deter you from going to games? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, for me, it wouldn't make any difference. But I, people, well, I guess some people do go there for the day out and for a few drinks. But for me, I go for the football. I want to be at the game and enjoy the atmosphere. Um, it's it just, yeah, the problem, the problem is, I guess, with anything, policing these things, how do you do it? I mean, mm. you know, yesterday people had to have covid tests or proofs of vaccinations and honestly any i promise you anyone could have just could have just walked through there um through there yesterday it was a complete shambles so having that and other but other sports i don't know if it i don't know what attracts that behavior because you can go you know football games in england you're not allowed to say you know is it is it more the attitude because if you're allowed to drink at your seat during the football would people drink less before a game mm. so I've, I've been at games where been before where people will you know stand and down beers because they think right 10 minutes to kick off or they come in at half time and they think right I've got to drink two beers in 15 minutes or three beers in 15 minutes because I can't take it to my seat yet if you go to Twickenham to watch the rugby it's a much more civilised atmosphere mm. and you can sit during the game and have a beer and you don't get that rush of people thinking right I've got 15 minutes at half time to drink as much as I can for the second half so actually would people naturally drink less the other, that's the other way of looking at it if you relax the rules um, around the game would people drink less it's a very, very interesting point you bring up because obviously people drink at rugby they, they drink at cricket they drink at American football and it seems to always be football that has problems with fans um, and maybe that could be the fix I, I don't know if Boris has listened to this by any chance but maybe Maybe we give that a try for the coming Premier League season where you're you're allowed to drink at your seat. I'm just thinking, me being a non-drinker, and I think like I've I've been out with drunk people many times, and I can speak from my experience only. I feel quite uncomfortable around really drunk people because I don't know what's going to happen next. So like whether they're aggressive towards me or not, the feeling of like oh man, if he decides to just do something, it's just not a really like healthy environment to be in. But that, on a night out, that I don't feel like that. But at a football match, I feel exactly like that. Um, and I've been to watch cricket, and I don't ever feel like that. It always seems to be like football, but I don't know. I don't know. Like, like I'm just as invested as I imagine you are when you're watching England in rugby or England in cricket as you are England in the Euros, right? Yeah, I guess so. I guess, I guess compared to those sports, maybe football is just more divisive and more, you know, and the, I guess the problem with alcohol is, you know, people react based on their moods or their experiences. And it's a very emotive sport, isn't it? Football, very tribal. Um, and people are unpredictable. You know, if everyone was nice, huggy, friendly drunks, you'd probably be quite happy with them. But, yeah. you know, people are unpredictable when they drink. Um, and I think in, 
you know, a lot of, I'm pretty sure in Champions League games, a lot of time, alcohol's banned in the stadium um, and stuff like that. And there's, you know, the atmosphere at those games and the enjoyment people get from those games is just as good. So I don't think it's, so, you know, banning alcohol at football, I don't think would be an issue um, in terms of people's enjoyment. I'm just not sure, you know, the reality of it, the, you know, I don't know how much, you know, things like beer sponsors, you know, money, yeah. money talks, doesn't it? Beer sponsorship, I don't know, you know, you know, how much clubs make, surrounding businesses, restaurants, bars, it's an important part, you know, of the economy. If you go to a, you know, you know, there's lots of bars and restaurants that rely on, you know, football fans turning up week in, week out before a game or to go for some drinks there. It's part of, you know, not a good part, but it's, I guess it's part of British culture. It's part of the football culture. I just think, and the truth is 95% of the time, there's not really many incidents. There's always going to be one or two that have too much to drink or go a bit over the top. I just think yesterday was definitely a lot of people went too far. Mm. But I thought we also maybe have to put it in perspective of that situation's, you know, when's that next situation going to gonna happen? Mm. Because, you know, England, you know, you know, England reaching a major final at Wembley. You know, and I'm, I'm sure UEFA won't be in a rush to give us any major tournaments for a while after that, anyway. So I think it was a. I'm not certainly not condoning anyone's behaviour, but I do think it was a. You know, it's a real unique situation and not something we have to be worried about into coming into the you know upcoming Premier League season or anything like that. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, my worry is like when the World Cup happens, when it has happened, England fans have gone abroad, we caused problems in Netherlands when I think we had a friendly there, I want to say, in Russia, uh, in France. Um, so this it, it happens on repeat when we're all together for a tournament. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, it won't happen at a club game, very rarely happens. Um, I just worry that the next time a tournament happens, it's probably going to happen again. And it's going to be England fans. That's just literally just how it is. It probably also partially explains why half of the world was supporting um, Italy in the final. Um, but you've had a great experience at a Euros final. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm leaving this on a very sombre and dark mood. But I'm sure despite England not winning, you still had probably one of the best days out you could have possibly dreamt of bar the result exactly I think being forgetting all that went on being in that stadium I know there was I don't know how many people officially were in there but there was at least 85,000 people in there of which at least 80,000 were England fans and you know the the atmosphere before the game the you know the the singing of the national anthem the cheering of the players' names as they were read out, the you know scoring after two minutes to take the lead in a final was just was just unbelievable. And the atmosphere, you know, from my experience, the atmosphere in, inside the stadium was really friendly. Everyone was just there, you know, to support England and having a good time. There was obviously a lot a lot made of fans booing players taking the knee before the game um, and booing. I'm sure there was some booing of the Italian national anthem. Actually, come to think of it. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't anything that they didn't drown it out. It was, you know, it wasn't. It, you know, the, the, you know, the fans, the atmosphere. Everyone was behind the team, and it was. It was. It really was an unreal atmosphere um, inside the state, inside the stadium yesterday. 
That's well. Uh, I'm glad you had a good time. Uh, hopefully, the next time we talk, it will be much more cheery because I imagine you're a very nice drunk. I imagine you're the type sort of guy who's like, I love you, mate, to every stranger. <laughs> um, Ollie, thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Good to speak to you. Top, man. I'm joined by Ollie Modest, who's an ex-youth player and coach. And unfortunately, we're talking about a topic that I was really hoping wouldn't be a topic we'd have to discuss after what has been an incredible few weeks of football. And uh, where we felt as though the nation has come together, but unfortunately, um, after the Euros, lots of young black footballers have been sent tons of social media abuse. Um, Ollie, first of all, when you woke up this morning, is that what you were expecting? Uh, sadly, yes. I think um, once again, it's, it's something that is expected for these sorts of players in these sorts of situations because of the environment they're put into. Like the, the pressure they're under is a little bit extra because they know that they've got the full support of the fans nationwide, um, globally, but if, when it's going right. But if it goes negatively, then there is the potential for this to happen. Hmm. What what can be done? Because I, unfortunately, when I was watching that penalty shootout, I was probably thinking exactly what ninety percent of ethnic minorities were thinking. I was praying that Saka didn't miss because I was thinking tomorrow morning when this kid wakes up, he's gonna get a lot of stick. Not because he missed a penalty, because he's black and he missed missed a penalty. Yeah, I think that that's that is, and he is just a child, and that is. He's a, he's a young professional. He's just started out the game. Yeah, he's been a fantastic, he's been a standout performer, but um, he's, he's still so young in his career and he's still developing. But I just think it's got to be, there's got to be harsher punishments for it. You have the stadium closures, you have your fines, you have your social media companies that are now sort of, they're trying to delete posts or get things um, over to the police. But I feel, still feel like there could be more that's done in terms of harsher um, fines and more um, people held um, in accountability for their actions. Um, they want to watch the football. So if you take that away from them, the privilege of watching the football, you can't go to the stadium um, and you get a lifetime ban if you're caught. I think that will deter people from doing it a little bit more. It's a little bit concerning, coming to your point of like doing more, that when, when the COVID stuff was happening, it still is obviously going on, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all these platforms created these ads within probably like a day, even less, which you'd click through and you'd follow the instructions, etc, etc, etc. I don't know why social media companies aren't just going, all right, he's racist, let's get rid of him. Or even better still, every time you log in, or the, the next time you log in, you have to give your ID. That feels like such a simple fix. Yeah, 100%. And they've got the technology and you can see the advancement they've got in technology. Everything is live. Everything is very instant. You can click and post a picture. You can click and send a comment. Why can't I click and have to confirm who, exactly who I am? So there is full accountability for every picture, every tweet, every comment that is sent out. Mm. I think away from sports, when Gary Neville was on, on TV, he said that this is essentially a problem um, with top politicians as well who've had double standards as we've seen don't need to mention any names um, 
it feels as though like this is common on the street as well. It's not as like you will you'll know better than me, but within sports we we see it when things are not going well. But on the streets, if politicians are saying that taking the knee is is rude and it's offensive to some people, so you shouldn't do it, this is just going to get worse. You're one hundred percent, and I feel that that is um, the the double standard that comes in and the, the sense of hierarchy. And if a politician can do it, then why can't the man in the street do it? The woman in the street say these things because they're seeing that the politicians saying this on the on the their TV screen, um, and it's the same with everything that's going on with the covid situation they say one thing and they'll they'll do another thing themselves so again the double standards creates an opportunity for these negative and it's a minority in uh, most cases for them to pounce on any opportunity that they see to spread their little bit of hate and their little bit of negative um, comments but you say minorities if i'll just look at football for an example and in particular the italy england game if there's 80,000 England fans there and 10% are the minority. That's 8,000 people. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a lot. It is still a lot. And one is too many, but it's, it's, you, it's I think it's a, such a big problem that we've not controlled and we've not wanted to um, ra- totally eradicate in just an instant that we've got to slowly do it because, like we've just said, the politicians have their double standard so everyone has their own little mindset of oh I can get away with saying this because such and such has said this have you in your whether it's been as a player or just as a person come across racial abuse to this extent Uh, I have so when I was younger um, playing um, but it's I think it's getting worse and for me personally it was it is draining because you think, oh, did I do something wrong even more so than one of my teammates? And it, yeah, you come away from the football, something you love, and it's like, oh, well, I had a bad game, but am I? should I quit? Should I do this? Because whoever it is in my team done exactly the same thing, but doesn't get the same level of criticism. If, if you don't mind, you mentioned this happened when you were younger. Can you just tell us what happened in that situation? Um, so I we played a, a youth cup game, and um, we went out, and it was it was a tweet um, or an inbox tweet um, from um, a fan, and so we was seventeen years old, sixteen, seventeen years old when it happened, and it was just oh you have no no place um, within the team because you done such as that you done Mr. Tackle um, and they score at the end of the game. It's, um, it's, 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 it's a big deal for them and a big occasion for, for us as a team and for me personally, but it was a sense of, oh, well, what, what now? Where that doesn't make sense to me, similar to what's happened at uh, Wembley, um, and I'm sorry you had to go through that. It's not too dissimilar for me. I've been through it myself as well. And I, I the reason I'm asking this, this next question is because I'm unsure of how this makes me feel. But when something like this happens, um, do you feel like you become closer? Do, do you feel like you go, I want to be more British now to prove these people wrong? Or do you think, actually, you know what? Do one. I'm gonna I'm going to go towards the heritage of my parents instead. Um, I think for me... 
Um, I, I never told anyone. I, I just sort of got on with it. I didn't really pay it much attention. Um, so I think I swayed more than I'm, I'm British, so I'm going to prove you wrong. And this is, this is what I'm about, and I'll show you differently. It's, it feels, I can imagine, had you scored the winning goal in that game, they would have loved you to bits. And and that is that that's one of these things that is completely unexplainable. Like like it's almost as if like being black actually doesn't matter until it goes wrong, or being ethnic minority doesn't matter un, until it goes wrong. Do do you fear that like if say you go back into getting into coaching, or let's just say for example you get signed by a team? Do you still have that like fear of if I do something wrong, that could happen? Um, I think so. I played for a little while afterwards and I never got anything afterwards. So I'd never really thought of it. But now, like I said, if I was to get signed now in the current climate, I think it would definitely be in the back of my head that if I do this wrong, if I misplace this part, if I uh, miss this opportunity, if I commit this foul, then I could potentially be a victim of... Um, these 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 things now. Where where does the blame lie for this? Is it the government? Is it the government? Is it social media companies? Is it? I don't I don't know. Like where where is the blame in this? I I feel like it's it's they've got to the, both of those parties the the government and social media um have to have um a major share of this blame because they are providing the platform in the social media companies to directly get to these players. Because majority of these people will never see these players or um, some of them won't even attend a stadium or a game to verbalise it at a stadium. But then also the members of the uh, government and the members of parliament, they're, they're showing the, their sort of standard of this is acceptable, we can say this and do this. And it's just picked up on by other normal members of the public who then pass it on to their friends, their children, and it becomes a direct line straight to the footballers. It's just just shocking, isn't it? Like we're sat here talking about this topic in twenty twenty one after after England have had an incredible run to the Euros, which by the way, um for anybody who's listening to this thinking, ah, it's just too too two guys of a ethnic minority background feeling sorry for themselves. Raheem Sterling uh, scored a strong majority of England's goals. He also contributed to Harry Kane's goals. Um, Tyron Mings played in the opening two games, if I'm not wrong. Reese James also plays. Calvin Phillips also has played every single minute near enough. Um, this team has got to this position because of ethnic minority footballers uh, or ethnic minority people. I I wonder, and I'm obviously going to ask you the question, I wonder if this ever stops and and... Where where do you see it stopping if it is to stop? I want to say positively, I, I want it to stop. So I do think there is time for it to stop. And I think as long as everyone is on board with the taking of the knee and respecting of everyone, accepting of everyone in the game, no matter what race they're back from, what no matter what colour of their skin, I do think there is an opportunity for us to stop this and eradicate it from the game. And that then in turn goes into society because football and sport as a whole plays a massive part on people's mentalities and ideologies. Um, 
So I want to say definitely there is hope that this can be stopped. Do, do you think they should take the knee next season? Um, I know we haven't spoken about it, but Crowds will be back. Do you think that could end up causing more harm than good? And this was the thing in the in the Euros when um, teams decided they weren't going to take the knee. It was a big talking point um, because they wouldn't. And for me, that's that's a sign, again, of an opportunity for a team, a club, a set of fans to say, no, we're against taking the knee. We're against this because X, Y, Z. Whereas if it's not a political thing and it is just a stand against racism, stand against discriminative behaviour, then I think everyone should take the knee and have their own way of expressing that they are standing together against this sort of behaviour. So taking the knee or everyone standing together as one um, just before the start of a game, again, is just a sign of it's a solid effort for everyone. You do have, like, Zaha doesn't take the knee. Brentford, uh, as a club, have said it's just lip service, so they they don't want to do it. Do you think football authorities should do more where either they say it has to be done or they say it's fine if, if you don't want to do it? I, again, I don't think it should be a dictatorship and I don't think it should be dictated to a club, a, a person, an individual, because they may have their own views for not wanting to do it. Um, mm. But I think there should be the opportunity for the space before the game for anyone that does want to do it, like they have done. So Crystal Palace have still continued to do it, um, even though Zaha doesn't want to do it for his own reason. And he's uh, a minority footballer, so he's got his reasons why he doesn't want to do it. So I just think as, a, as long as there's an opportunity, and that's for the fans, for the coaches, and for all the players involved, um, I think that's the way it should should go forward. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ollie, for being so open. Um, thank you for having this dialogue. I'm sure you're sick of being asked questions about racism in football, but we, we need people like yourself uh, to talk about this subject. So hopefully one day we can eradicate it from, from the game and also from the streets as a whole. Um, thank you again, man. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Here we go then, it's time to look back at this wonderful Euros. Uh, I'm joined by Azim, who's a comedian and football content creator, a huge football fan, and he is actually funny. Some comedians are not, this man is. How are you doing, man? (laughs) I'm good, man. Uh, Can't complain. I'm just very happy that uh, the Euros are done now and I can, because I'm in India and I can just go back to sleeping at a regular time and, you know, just uh, be a functioning adult again. (laughs) How much of the Euros have you watched? Because I see your tweets every single day, so you're obviously staying up yeah. till like 5am. Yeah, 4am, and then just the the tweeting for an hour after that. So, yeah, I mean, my marriage is not going very well. Uh, <laughs> but, you know. I'm sure I've watched pretty much every game. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. It's been um been a hell of a journey because the Euros have come at a time where, like, obviously I know the COVID situation in India has been really, really bad, as it has been here in England. Um and I think it's almost been like a little bit of a break for people where we've gone, there's lots of yep. fans in Hungary, lots at Wembley. It feels like we've gone back to reality, back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just like, I think the first time when I saw, was it Copenhagen or Budapest? I think both of those were like completely packed stadiums. And just seeing that was like, oh, like the world can be normal again. I mean, it, it felt nice to, to see it that way. And and it's been a year in waiting because obviously the Euro. The reason it's still called Euro twenty twenty is, I guess, it's because they need to stay on brand and they need to have the 
the years of the Euros yeah. on even numbers. Uh, that's the only explanation I have for it. Um, uh, no, also, uh, as a freelancer, I can attest to the fact that the designers would have charged them to change it again. So uh, <laughs> probably saving a bit of money there as well. I, I respect them. It must have been an Asian man running the uh, Euro mm-hmm. campaign. Um, how was the Euros <laughs> for you? It was good. I mean, I wasn't expecting much uh, when it began somehow. Um, But uh, like I thought the World Cup 2018 was a great tournament, like really exciting, really good matches. And this was pretty much at par, if not better. So one of the the better international tournaments that I've uh, watched on television. Did it live up to the expectations? Before the tournament, were you expecting it to be this good, so much drama? Oh, not at all. Like, I was not expecting, especially, I think, the day when we had the, the France versus Switzerland and uh, Spain, Spain Croatia. versus Croatia. Yeah, I mean, for me, that was the best, like, six hours of sport I've ever seen <laughs> in, in one go. It was incredible. And just both games, it was literally like I was about to fall asleep and be like, yeah, it's 3-1. I mean, yeah. I was supporting Croatia as well, but it's 3-1. They're not coming back. And I fell asleep on the couch and just, you know, falling asleep with the commentary going on. And then suddenly there's a shout and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm up again. <laughs> it's quite a strange Euros because, like as you just mentioned, in Budapest, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Budapest. I can't remember exactly, but it was loads of fans there. And then you had mm. Wales traveling thousands of miles whilst England are just in their backyard. Like that whole yeah. shift of like this tournament being from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, probably added an yeah. extra flavor. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think everyone had away games pretty much except England. Um, and uh, I think it, it, made, it made it more taxing for, for most of the teams. But uh, well, England had the expectation and the, it's coming home to deal with. So I guess that, that makes up for the pressure of travel. And obviously you watched it and it didn't come home. Um, who were you supporting? Being in India, I'm always keen to know who who you guys support. Um, so I've been, a, I've been a Netherlands fan for the since 98. So... Uh, so funny story. We don't get official like Netherlands merchandise here. So I I ordered a jersey from the UK, uh, and by the time it reached me, they'd already been knocked out. So yeah, I was gonna say they were quite disappointing, weren't they? They were they went out Very. to Czech, Czech Republic, and yeah, I think a lot of people looked at them and said they're making the semis. Yeah, I mean, I I said they were making the semis. That's why I ordered my jersey with absolute confidence. Like okay, quarterfinals. Here we go. It's on. Um, but uh, I think I think that's been a thing with the Netherlands for for a long time, where they're like excellent in the group stages, and then something happens to them uh, when, when they reach the knockout. And it was just also the circumstances in which they went out that ridiculous handball from uh, from Delict. Um, I think they missed Van Dijk a lot. I think uh, well for whatever you say about him, I think they also missed having uh, Van der Beek around. Um, and also missed having just like a striker focal point, somebody to finish off the chances, the, the large amount of chances that they were creating. So not not a good not a good tournament for them. Surely you still have time to return the jersey, no? <laughs> uh listen, I paid customs duty on it. Uh, that ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> um aside from Netherlands, who who else which other team or player did you feel let you down massively? So for me, I mean, it was obviously I've always supported either Netherlands or Croatia, um, and Croatia, I think they they went about as far as I expected them to. Um, I think it's an aging squad again, a squad that doesn't have like a natural striker uh, since uh, Manzukic has moved on. 
Um, they're going to be a squad now that's going to take like a really huge rebuild after Luka Modric and and all of that. So um, it was disappointing. I, I would have hoped they would have made it to like maybe the semis. Uh, I think maybe hoping for them to win it would have been too much because they were already a really, really old squad, uh, team uh, in 2018. Um, but uh, disappointment-wise... I mean, I was very happy about it, but probably a lot of people were disappointed by France and the way they sort of imploded uh, against against Switzerland. And there's there's always that the thing with France about uh, that little bit of infighting. We started hearing those little rumors mm. about the Mbappe and the Giroud debate and the parents getting involved and shouting at players. I mean, it was it was great theater to to watch and and report on as a as a content creator. But uh, I, I can see why a lot of people are really disappointed with France. It is just peak France, though, isn't it? Like, yeah. I think it was Adrian Rabiot's mum started shouting at Mbappe's mum, maybe. <laughs> and it's just like, aunties, keep your handbags. Like, there's just no need yeah, for I mean, the crowd. Yeah, I mean, leave the fighting to the Indian parents, you know? I mean, that's what they're good at. <laughs> there's, no, there's no Indian players playing at the Euro, so we don't, we don't get that joy. Um, on reflection, do you feel like the best team won in the end? The one won the tournament, should I say? Yeah, definitely. I think Italy by far the most consistent team. Um, I think they suffered a bit once uh, the Spinozola injury happened uh, because he was so central and so key to everything that, that they were doing through the, throughout like the first five games of the tournament. But they had a good squad. They have a lot of depth. They had a great manager. I think uh, Mancini used his his squad really, really well. I think uh, even the small gestures of like you know getting almost everyone from the squad to get some minutes through the tournament uh, just kept that togetherness and that that camaraderie that they have and uh, yeah i think i think they they absolutely completely deserve to win and considering the fact that they didn't even make it to like the last major tournament that they were trying to qualify to and the, this entire turnaround in within 2 years of being undefeated since then uh, it's a tremendous achievement i i'm going to have to agree with you there i think italy were outstanding throughout the tournament um We've had a pretty long cycle of football. I don't think we've ever had a cycle of football where obviously we yep. had the Premier League season, those games Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, mm-hmm. Saturday, Sunday. Yep. Are you looking forward to a bit of a break? Or are you obviously, oh, not cool. not for your marriage, I'm saying from a football perspective, are you looking forward to a break? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, obviously you can never have enough football, but uh, yeah, I think it, we all do reach that point because if it's there, if it's on every day, all the time, then where's the novelty of it? Like you, you need to... Like, like, you know, like every good relationship, you need a little bit of missing to get the spice back up. Am I right? That is some good relationship advice. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm going to throw some questions at you regarding the tournament and your favourite moments, etc, etc. Mm. Who's your player of the tournament? Hmm, difficult one. I mean, it would have been Spinozola before he got injured. Um, I think... Uh, Probably for me, uh, Chiellini, to to sustain, you know, that level of performance at his age uh, and win a trophy uh, and also clothesline Bukayo Saka in front of like 70,000 people at Wembley. Uh, just it's like, a, ba- it's like a backwards clothesline. <laughs> you end up behind him and just tuck him down with his shirt. Um, what, was your, what was your game of the tournament? Um, oh, that's an easy one. It's got to be France versus Switzerland. No question. Yeah. Favourite moment? Mm, favorite moment um i'd say um i think that the, seeing the joy that of, of denmark when they re- reached the semi-finals and just how like thrilled they were and the fact of everything happening with christian erickson and all of that and just seeing that 
just that unbridled joy uh, of and the excitement of like oh my god we've uh, nobody expected us to be mm-hmm. here and here we are in you know euro semi final despite all the odds and everything being against us so I, definitely that was my moment yeah uh, young player in the tournament oh so many of them i mean there's the obvious one of course pedri from spain i think he was fa- fabulous um i really really enjoyed uh, damsgard from mm. from denmark i think he's got uh, like amazing uh, amazing technique very very good player one to watch out for the future um and uh, kieza as well very very good tournament for him young player my boy freddy he's going to upset a few uh, england fans if i just sit here singing praises of kieza so i'm not going to i'll save that for my spare time um What's your unforgettable moment of the tournament? I think there's a lot of these. I don't think mm. there's been a tournament in my lifetime where there's been so many unforgettable moments, yeah. whether good or bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's exactly as you say this. It's so difficult to, to pick one. Um, but, you know, a, as a comedian, uh, I'm going to say the, the Chiellini pullback on Saka just purely... <laughs> because of the amount of memes that were made of it within like 20 minutes just top shelf quality memes flowing across twitter it was fabulous so i'm going to go with that one uh, and a tricky one because you're going to have to cast your memory back goal of the tournament oof um i mean there's the obvious one which is shik from the halfway line um there was uh oh, which one was it i forget it was uh Yamalenko had a pretty good strike as well. Um Shakiri had a great one as well. Uh yeah. th- there's a lot a lot of them to pick from. Um but I, maybe maybe I'm going to say that just g- given the 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 significance of the game, uh the first goal that Kiesa said uh, uh, scored against Spain, uh that little nice curler into the top corner. Yeah. Mm, that was a good one for me. It's so funny because I was at that game, right? And uh, a lot of people said that Italy-Spain game was unbelievable. And uh, we went yeah. home thinking it was a really bad game of football. And then I came home <laughs> and watched like extended highlights, like 17 minutes of, yeah. of the highlights. And I was like, we really missed a good game of football. I don't know what we were doing there. <laughs> <laughs> But we somehow missed this incredible game of football thinking it didn't even happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Azim, thank you so much for your time. I will let you go to bed. Yeah. And hopefully your wife yes. is still awake because... Uh, You don't want to be getting into bed going, oh, I'm sorry, I had to, I was busy doing a podcast with some guy in England because then she's going to be even more upset with you. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. That is it. The Euros are over. I hope you've enjoyed the pod. I've absolutely loved hosting the nub and I've absolutely loved all the guests that have come on. So thank you to the guests as well. Thank you for your support for listening and we are going nowhere. The 21-22 season will have us back here again. This was just the first series. So if by some chance this is the first time you're listening, make sure you subscribe and follow the pod as well because as I say, we are going to be back. And if you have some spare minutes at your hand and you haven't listened to the rest of the pod, then make sure you go back and give it a listen. There's a few weeks until the season kicks off. Until then, I'll see you at the start of the next season. Manager, a flashy suit, a track suit, or is it down to luck? Decision making, wheeling and dealing, or signing star players. At the end of the day, it's about getting results. Oh, my fan is the new free to play app. 
open packs, collect players, then pick your team and crush the opposition. This is the next level fantasy football. Think you've got what it takes? Stop talking and start proving. There's £125,000 up for grabs. OldmaFan.com. Download the app now. Must be 18 years or older. Terms and conditions apply. Please play responsibly.